This is Pastor Mike Fabares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your walk with Christ. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to focalpointradio.org or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. I know a lot of folks talk about Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy as a book that uh, impacts their thinking about the attributes of God. Another classic is uh, J.I. Packer's Knowing God. And um, my wife and I read this for the first time back in, uh, I think, 84, 85. I just took mine off the shelf this week, noticed her maiden name is in the inside of it. But uh, I put my name right next to it. So <laughs> That's when we were sharing books. I don't let her share books anymore. I the house set and the study set. One of the best lines out of the foreword to knowing God is a simple line where Packer says, disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder your way through life blindfolded. The bottom line for the apostle in the New Testament as he wrote back to the churches that he planted, examples being Colossians chapter 1 verse 10 was a constant and enduring prayer that they would grow in the knowledge of God. I mean, that's the bottom line desire of a man who cares for a church because he knows if they get that right, everything else has a way of falling into place. And if we want to know about how to rightfully live the Christian life in our culture or worship God or share the faith, it's all going to, uh, to spring from a proper understanding of theology proper. So I'm glad that you're here on Thursday night, and I hope that what this study is doing for you as we reach week seven is take your thinking about God and try and raise it to another level. My daughter's five right now, and uh, she called the other day after school and said, uh, I said, what are you doing? What'd you do in school? She said, did some math, and uh, (laughs) she's five, so I wasn't sure what that that was all about, but... uh, you know, she told me whatever the math was that they were doing, and I thought to myself, you know, that'll have a whole different meaning when she's uh, in fifth grade, and it'll have a whole different meaning when she's a senior in high school. Uh, that's what I hope it is for you. I mean, we come to Christ and we learn about God, and we say God is, uh, is loving or God is holy, and it means something so simple, and it's true. I mean, my daughter's doing math at five, but it's very elementary. But the goal is that at some point in our Christian life, we're moving through the stages of growth in our knowledge of God so that this prayer of the Apostle Paul comes a reality for us that we have deepened and, 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 and broadened our understanding of God. Because when that is straight in your life, the blindfold comes off, we find ourselves stumbling and bumbling a whole lot less, and God brings us on a path of effective Christian living. And that's my prayer for Compass Night this fall. So if you have your Bibles, let's start at the end and go to the book of Revelation, if you would. And I love the fact that God has ended the canon of New Testament Scripture with a view into heaven because after 65 books, we finally have an idea of what God is like. It's still on a human plane, uh, finite, but we can start to peek behind the curtain, if you will, of heaven, and we see some things going on there that bring us to our first attribute tonight in our seventh week of this study. Look at it with me, Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4. 
John is taken up in this vision before the throne of God. In Revelation chapter 4, verse number 6, it says, Before the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass. A lot of look-likes in the book of Revelation. This is just all depicted with symbolism. Something, you know, not exactly like this, but, but something that, that reminded him of something like crystal. In the center around the throne, there were these four living creatures that we met in the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Hard to understand. They're covered with eyes, whatever that means. That's a, that's a freaky picture. In front and in back, the first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, and the third had the face of a man, and the fourth was, a, was like a, a flying eagle. I know we picture in a real elementary view of God that we'll get into his presence and high-five him and hug Jesus, and it'll all just be this great place. But in reality, there's so much there that we can't even process. This is going to be a, a, a dramatic scene, to say the least. Verse number 8, the four living creatures, which we don't know much about other than what Ezekiel tells us and what Revelation 4 tells us. They're flying around with six wings, covering their uh, eyes all around, uh, covered rather with eyes all around, even under the wings of the four living creatures. And the Bible says, day and night, they never stop saying. They are worshiping the attributes of God. And here it is, the most fundamental, basic, intrinsic statement about the nature of God. Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who, as we saw last week, who was and who is and who is to come. Hopefully you got your worksheet tonight. We're going to look at our first attribute in the communicable or shared series. I hope you understand what we mean by that. Theologians all have to pick words to put the categories of God's attributes into two buckets. We've got those that we can participate in, right, and those that we cannot There are shared attributes of God that we can reflect, and clearly, I hope this brings to mind passages like, be holy because I'm holy, repeated four times in the the scriptures. It's it's an attribute to be shared, to be participated in, to be reflected. It's like uh, the flu is is a communicable disease, right? A communicable sickness. Uh, Spina bifida is not. You can't catch it. You either got it or you don't. And when it comes to God's attributes, there are some attributes that he has that no one else is going to have, and he can't give them to you. He cannot share them with you. But we start tonight the shift from non-communicable, non-shared, uh, transit, uh, transitive attributes into moral attributes, transitive ap- attributes, what we called and decided to call communicable attributes. God is holy. And since we did this last week, let's do this again. Turn with me real quickly to John chapter 6. Let's take this expression of the attribute of God and recognize how Christ assumed the same title, the same description. And I hope that was somewhat telling, at least as a composite picture last week, that the things that God, the almighty eternal one of the Old Testament declares about himself, Christ steps on the scene and says, I'm all those things too. And so it is with the shared attributes, which won't be as dramatic as last week, because if God is the only one who shares omnipresence and eternality and those kinds of things, then for Christ to claim it, to say before Abraham was born, I am, that's huge. But even the way these attributes are framed, when Jesus describes, is described in the, in the gospels, he's described with a kind of exclusivity about the shared attributes of God. Take a look at, uh, drop all the way down to verse 68, John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 68. Simon Peter responds, 
to Jesus and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? And he said, are you going to leave me too? Back in verse 66, everybody's leaving, everybody's taken off. A lot of quote-unquote disciples, they're not going to follow him anymore. It got too tough. Uh, teaching's too complicated. It's not what we, we hoped. And uh, Peter goes, where are we going to go? Jesus, are you going to leave me too? He says, you have the, the words of eternal life. Now, underline this in verse 69. It says, um, we believe and know that you are a holy one of God. Is that what it says? No, see, that's the deal. The holy one of God. Something very unique about that. You are the, the holy one who comes from God. That's an amazing uh, kind of statement and one that, uh, again, is not going to kick anybody over the line who doesn't believe in the deity of Christ because it is a communicable attribute. But it is telling, as we see the pattern in the New Testament, that Christ is claiming all the attributes of the Father. All right. Now, before we form a definition, which was our pattern from last week, uh, we need to understand that this is a, a, a very broad attribute. When we talk about saying God is holy, when we say God is holy, it is such a, um, a, a broad attribute. Matter of fact, it is, the, uh, it is the, the most broad attribute of all. And to understand the holiness of God, we've got to understand it is used in Scripture in a, uh, uh, what some theologians call a metaphysical way. It is used in a, uh, in a very objective way, in a way that has nothing to do with ethics or morals. We're introduced to the word in the Bible as being a uh, description of, of things. You might remember back there in Exodus chapter 3 when God shows up in the, uh, in the vision in this burning bush there and, and, and Moses is supposed to walk up and what does the voice from the bush say? Take off your sandals, you are on holy ground. The ground is holy. Now, you don't think about that when it comes to the other attributes of God. We learn that God is omnipresent. We don't hear God describing things as omnipresent. Even the other communicable attributes, love. We don't want to say that tree is love. You don't, you don't see that. But about holiness, we're introduced to the concept as more of an abstract or metaphysical statement about things that then is also applied to God. The ground is holy. Go back in the Old Testament, if you would, to passages like this, Exodus chapter 40. I quoted, if you're a note taker, Exodus 3 verse 5, take off your sandals, the place where you're standing is holy ground. Take a look at Exodus 40. Then I'll make some connections and I rattle these things off, you know, just often squeezing them between points on the weekend, but now would be a good time to maybe write these things down so that we don't forget. There is a whole set of cognate English words that come through the Hebrew word, Gadesh, and, and, the, and the Greek word, Hagios, into a Latin form, Sanctus. And then from, from Sanctus, the Latin word, we have all these English words. And, and many of them reflect the kind of metaphysical or abstract, non-moral aspect of the word uh, Gadosh or, or uh, Hagios. Take a look at it here, Exodus chapter 40. There was the process that the priests in, 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 the, in the early days, the prophets took the oil and they poured it on things. That word uh, is, is the word anointing, translated anointing in the Bible. Take the uh, anointing oil, the pouring oil, and pour, he says, anoint the tabernacle. Pour that, that oil on the tabernacle and everything in it. Exodus 40, verse 9. Exodus 40, verse 9. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Now, here's another word, which, by the way, is also a first cousin word to, to gathosh or gathesh, which is the Hebrew word for holy, and it's translated consecrate, okay? Same concept. We pour this oil on the tabernacle and all the utensils in the tabernacle, and we consecrate it. 
and all of its furnishings. And when we do, then those things are holy. That we've just leapfrogged from God to things right over us. In the scripture, we find repeatedly in the first books that God ever wrote for us, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, things being called holy all the time. Verse 10, anoint the altar of burnt offering and all of its utensils. Consecrate, there's the first cousin word to holy, the altar, and it will be most holy. Verbal form, noun form. Anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate them. The concept of holy we're introduced to in, in the Pentateuch is saying this is, is special. I mean, that, that could be a synonym for the word. It is set apart. You don't use the altar to barbecue food just to have lunch. You don't use the utensils uh, in, the, in the tabernacle uh, just to, to, you know, to, to use because you, you didn't have a spatula or you lost your, your, your barbecue fork. Uh, you don't take the showbread and, and just make a sandwich. That's, that's set apart. It's consecrated. The, the incense and the candelabra, that stuff is special. As I said Sunday, you don't play handball in the temple. It's a great room for it, but you can't because it is holy. It is set apart. Now, I said those words, gadosh, into Latin as Jerome translated the Bible into what we call the Latin Vulgate. We now got introduced to the Latin word sanctus. And from sanctus, you Spanish people, what does sanctus mean? Holy, right? Santos, I'm sorry, right? No C in it. Santos, holy. From that, we get all kinds of, of English words. It's like in the olden days, this room would be used, you'd never use it for eating uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken because, uh, or kids don't run in it and you don't chew gum in it because it is the sanctuary. It's a special room, okay? As a matter of fact, the New Testament word that we get that describes people that join with God is the word saint. It comes from that word sanctus. Santos, speaking of, of Spanish, when they had people that were relegated to a special class in the Catholic church, they were uh, prefaced with the word san or santa, depending if it was a man or a, a woman, a masculine or a feminine, and then their name came, right? Santa Anna, right? San Juan Capistrano, the, the word saint. Set apart, sanctus, sanctum, inner sanctum. Uh, what other words do we have here in English? Sanctity of life, we talk about that. What is that? It's not just a piece of tissue. We talk about the sanctity of life. It's special. It is sacred. There's another word. All of those words, if you look at the use of those words, many of them just have to do with it's a special, sacred, special, different kind of thing, like a sanctuary, like a saint, sanctification. That was the other one I was thinking of. We talk about being set apart for God. All right. Well, in what sense do we talk about God being holy? Well, in two senses, actually. In the sense that he is completely special or different or unique, there's another good synonym for us, from everyone else. And because he is perfect, that uniqueness becomes now the standard for all that he makes. In other words, the uniqueness of him being different becomes the standard for everything else in the universe. He becomes the, the measuring stick. He becomes the one who defines by his very uniqueness all that is good and righteous. Then the word holy begins to take on an ethical term, a moral aspect. And in passages like Leviticus chapter 20, verse 7 and 8, we're called, as we see repeated throughout Leviticus and in the New Testament, in 1 Peter chapter 1, we are called to be holy. Because God is holy. And that means set apart 
but the way it's used is in all of your behavior, right? Saying no to the defilement in the world, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and being perfected in holiness. Then it starts to show this sense of, of an ethical quality. But to understand the word in a technical sense helps us with the moral sense, and it will help us with the definition, okay? I'm going to add these two things together. God is the only God. He is Mikael, Michael. He is He's the only one who is like God, nobody. He is perfect, but he's also now, because he is unique and God, he is morally perfect. Whatever God is becomes the moral standard, see? And that's a little different way to think. We often think of God being judged by an arbitrary standard. He is the standard. He is morally perfect without, now we look at him and we say, because of who he is, the uniqueness of God, and we examine his actions, and every attribute springs from the concept of holiness, he is without defect or error. He doesn't do anything that is not right because he is, by definition, the right one, the moral one, the perfect one, the holy one. In all of his actions and attitudes. His attitudes are right. His behavior is right. His thoughts are right. His volition is right. His processing of, 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 of events is right. His expression and his decisions, his will is always expressed rightly. So we're going to stick with the communicable side of it, which is when we talk about the holiness of God and we consider the implications of the holiness of God, what we're trying to say is he is ethically perfect. He is morally perfect. What he does now is the standard for all of our behavior. Let's consider that now, the aspects of the attribute that we need to ponder. Number one, it leads us to the ultimate event in scripture, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. The whole point of the cross, or as I put it here, the reason for the cross is the holiness of God. Now, think in your mind, if you will, from the very beginning. Matter of fact, let's look at it in Leviticus chapter 1. When God introduces a form of worship to men and women in the Bible, he begins with this very messy and seemingly cruel practice that reminds us that we cannot have fellowship with God, and the reason is holiness. We have a problem. We don't measure up. We are not morally perfect. Look at verse number 3, Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3. If the offering is a burnt offering, well, let's start in verse 2. Speak to the Israelites, Leviticus 1, 2, and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to Yahweh, bring an offering, an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect. Okay? Can't see, there's no problems with this animal. He must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. He's special. He's different. He's set apart. Now I find the perfect animal in my flock and I'm going to bring it as an acceptable offering to God. Verse four, I, as the worshiper, am to lay my hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted by God on his behalf to make, here's the key word in scripture, an atonement. Uh, 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 it, it, it fixes the lack. It, it satisfies the problem. It makes up for the lack in my life. Make an atonement for him. And then he goes on to describe all the ceremonies, all the laws, from animal offerings to grain offerings to fellowship offerings to sin offerings, all of those because, as the rest of the book of Leviticus says, you guys aren't holy enough. And because you lack holiness, there needs to be this really bizarre 
thing called a sacrificial system that reminds you that something perfect is going to take the place of your imperfection to make atonement or covering to satisfy the distance between your sin and a holy God. Now turn ahead, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 53. After almost a thousand years of the sacrificial system with a well-worn pattern of practice in coming to God, recognizing we've got a problem and we're imperfect. Isaiah 53 personifies the solution in what's called the suffering servant who would come and do this in verse number four of Isaiah 53. Surely the suffering servant is going to take up our affirmities, our problems, our, 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 our lack, our corruption, and carry our sorrows, the things that we regret, the things that we would cry over. And yet he's considered stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. Isaiah 53 verse 5. He's pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace, that's the picture of Leviticus chapter 1, was upon him. And by his wounds, that was the picture of the barbecue at the worship center, by his wounds were healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We're not perfect. We're we're not holy. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And if that didn't tie the picture together, nothing would. In Scripture, that's what they did to worship. As a sheep before her shearers is silent, he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment... He was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and was with a rich man in his death. And with the rich man, with the rich in his death, rather. I'm sorry, not the rich man. Though he had done no violence. Matter of fact, there was no deceit in his mouth. Which, by the way, we started the book of Isaiah with the righteous prophet in chapter 6 seeing God saying, holy, holy, holy. And the thing that he said was, me, the righteous one of Israel, I, I get my mouth is no good. Right? I'm a man of unclean lips. James says, if you don't fail in what you say, if you don't sin and transgress God's law in what you say, you're a perfect man. It's the hardest thing to control. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. If the, if the most righteous person in Israel says, I, I, my mouth is full of problems, the picture here is of something like that blemishless uh, sheep. No deceit in his mouth. Yet it was Yahweh's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. Though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, read in the margin, Leviticus chapter 1 and 2, right? He will see his offspring and prolong his days. Now, that's the thing about the dead, blemishless animal. Once you kill it, it's gone. (laughs) Here's Here's what Jesus must have been referring to. One of several passages like this where the resurrection is laden right there under the text of, of the Old Testament. When he talks about, he told them about his life and his death and his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, for instance, in the book of Luke. Here's the resurrection embedded in this text. And the will of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. And after the suffering of his soul, which, by the way, ends in death with the guilt offering, right? Gets burned up. He will see the light of life and be satisfied. Another reference to the resurrection. By his knowledge, my righteous servant, right? None are righteous. No, not one. That's what we learned. Oh, but he is. He will make right, justify, atone for many. And he will bear their iniquities. 
Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. Now, how can he get spoils? How can he get anything? He's dead. No, he, he rose again. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He was between two thieves. And by the way, he was with the rich in his death. What kind of grave did he get, end up in? Rich man's grave. For he bore the sins of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. The emergent church today that rejects the substitutionary atonement of, 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 the, of the cross, see, they believe it's some kind of, of cosmic uh, uh, child abuse. You've heard these emergent preachers talk like that, right? Um, they don't understand the problem. The problem is God is holy. Talk to your Muslim neighbor about the issue of getting our sins fixed before a holy God. Well, I know they tout the holiness of God, but if there is no atonement for our sin, he's not as holy as my God is, see? Because my God can't tolerate sin. Do you see the difference here? The reason for the cross is the absolute perfection and holiness of God. Without that, we don't need a cross. Without that, I, without that you have modern cleaned up Christianity, which is God loves us, and, and as, as one of the, the, the uh, uh, banner, you know, headlining leaders of the emergent church says, God doesn't have to kick the dog to forgive his wife. You know what I'm saying? He, that, that's ridiculous. The traditional view of the substitutionary atonement of Christ on a cross is absurd because you and I don't have to hurt anybody to forgive somebody. Do you see where we missed the point? There has to be atonement. God is too holy just to look the other way. The point of the cross the reason of the cross is the holiness of God. More on that. We'll get back to that in our second attribute. But let's talk about this. It also becomes our behavioral temp- template. Whatever can be shared about the attributes of God needs to be shared, even the cross itself. Right? If he laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. The picture of Christ's actions, the attitudes of the Father, they become the behavioral template for us. First Peter chapter one, I referenced it earlier, but it says, well, let's turn there. First Peter chapter one, we're going to look at verses 13 through 25. That's a big chunk, but let's look at the whole thing. Whatever God does in his holiness becomes a template for, for our behavior. Look at the picture here as it unfolds in first Peter chapter one, verse 13, prepare your minds for action. That's where it starts. Talked about that in the book of Romans recently. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Christ is revealed. As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is not just set apart and unique, right? But he is morally perfect. You be holy in all that you do. Verse 16, and he quotes now Leviticus. For it is written, be holy because I'm holy. Since you call on, father, uh, call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, then you ought to live your lives as strangers here in fear, in reverent fear, the NIV says. Verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but it was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and your hope are in God. Now that you've purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have a sincere love for your brothers, like he had for us, love one another deeply from the heart. 
For you have been born again, not with a perishable seed, but the imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass. Their glory is like the flower of the field. Quoting Isaiah now, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. This is the word that was preached to you. The message of the Christian life is reflecting the holiness of God that was manifested ultimately in the cross, which is we can't compromise what is good, what is right, what is perfect, what is morally and ethically and absolutely good. God's holiness is our behavioral template. Now, there's a lot of attributes. You'll say, well, I know that God is good and God is this and God is righteous. And and you'll say, we didn't cover those. We're putting all of those under this heading of holiness. He is righteous. He is good. He does things that are morally and absolutely perfect. So the goal and the the focus, I hope tonight, I rushed through a lot of this because I want to focus on how to imitate the attribute. If it's a shared attribute, hopefully you didn't stumble over my graphic on the worksheet this week. And God is supposed to be replicating his image in us, right? These are shared attributes. Oh, I get it now. Uh, Then we should be focused tonight. I mean, what what would please God more than for us to understand his holiness and work to, to replicate it, okay? Now, there's two ways to do this in scripture. I mean, there's 102 ways, but here's two broad categories for us. Number one, by regeneration. And I'm going to put this in parentheses because it'll contrast the second one, and that is all at once. If the point of Isaiah 53 is that all that symbolic sacrificial stuff was supposed to make up for the lack of holiness in your life, we were going to, as the New Testament brings into crystal clarity, take your resume, as imperfect as it was, count it all loss, and replace it with what is right. The righteous one will justify, make right many. See? Then there's no way we can be holy without regeneration. The point is, everything in the world that is an attempt at trying to reflect the attributes of God is failure, according to God, because there is still the cancer, if you will, the dirtiness, the unacceptability of sin. That's why we find in Scripture, quoted in the New Testament from the Old Testament, that their righteousness was as filthy rags. It's no good because of the fallen nature of mankind. As the promise of the old covenant, as the promise of the new covenant was in the old covenant, we have to take your heart of stone out and replace it with a new heart. Paul said the old man has to go go away and the new man is put in place. The old goes away, new creation in Christ, right? And new things come. We have to have that change. I know we applaud in our society people that try to do ethically right things. But you've got to understand from a position of God's holiness, nothing can fix the problem but the perfect one, and that's Christ. I need the perfect one to be laid over, if you will, intrinsically or ontologically over my life. And now God has to see the holiness of Christ in me. And that takes place in a twinkling of an eye the minute you repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ. Titus chapter 3. Let's take a peek at this after all that explanation here. Scripture obviously says it better than I can, but how crystal clear is this? Let's look at verses 3 through 8. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. You want to be holy. Don't start with your behavior. Start with your heart. Is that a common theme? Do we hear that like every other week at Compass Bible? I hope. This is not works righteousness, right? This is asking God to change who we are from the inside out. It starts with regeneration, regenerate, rebirth, new birth, born again. 
Here's the picture. Titus 3, 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved. And he's speaking now for the leaders of the early church. We were that way, sure. Deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through, here's the picture, the washing of rebirth. That's critical. The washing of rebirth. Rebirth now takes the sin problem away. Right? I want to be holy. I got to have this. And the renewal, I'm a new person now, by the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, if you want to get technical, put in the margin the word baptizo because the baptizo by the Holy Spirit is the key. Were you at the partner's workshop the other night, last week? That's the picture. The baptizo of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit takes my life and places me in Christ, Paul's favorite phrase, in Christ. That's when I am pulled out of my sinful state and ontologically placed into Christ. I am now seen and actually forensically and judicially in Christ. I am now washed by this whole thing called rebirth and I am renewed by the Holy Spirit because he has placed me in the goodness of Christ. I need a perfect 12th year of my life. I need a perfect 16th year. I need a perfect you know, adult year. I, I need all of that. Christ did that for us. We are saved by his life as much as we're saved by his, his death in scripture. The kindness and Love of God appeared. He saved us, verse 5, not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, made right, that's the picture from Isaiah 53, we might become heirs. Now all of a sudden we're totally qualified, whether we did it at the last hour of our lives or the last decade of our lives. We are now heirs having the hope of eternal life. And that's not the fingers crossed kind of hope. That's the confidence of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful. Here's the second half now. To devote themselves to doing what is good. There's practical holiness. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. It's a good thing. But the distinction, classic distinction, did we talk about this all the time? Between justification and sanctification is critical here. You have to be made holy, and then you have to devote yourself to living holy. See? One saves you. One saves you. The other is a reflection of your salvation. One takes place at the millisecond of your conversion. It's called new birth. The other one is a lifetime process of increasing holiness. At one moment, you become before the Father as perfect as you can be. You can't be any more perfect than being saved. Because in God's eyes, you're absolutely judicially holy. And now you begin a life of trying to reflect that holiness in your behavior, in your actions, in your thoughts. And that's the second part of this. You and I now need to reflect the holiness of God one act at a time. And I tell you, the problem is, and I feel like this is so basic, but... So many people come to church trying to start with the second thing here. They start with number two. I want to get right with God because I want to do some things that hopefully will make me acceptable to God. You can't do it that way. Is that clear enough? I get charged all the time with, with believing in a works righteousness. I don't believe that. You know that, right? The only way I can be right before God, and I could do it after a life of murder, murdering, raping, and pillaging people my whole life, and at the moment of my death, 
If I trust sincerely in Christ and repent of my sins, like a thief on a cross on his last day, right? I can have the hope, which is the confidence of eternal life. That's the holiness by the washing of new birth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now, though, if I had a chance to get off the cross and live for Christ, whether it's a day, a week, a month, a lifetime, I am now going to engage in what Titus called, or Paul called to Titus, rather, a devotion to doing what is good. And that will be a practical holiness. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, just to put one verse underneath this, this point. I want you to see that this is not a futile endeavor. While you are not, I trust, a Wesleyan perfectionist, we don't believe that you are going to live without sin for the rest of your Christian life. You can reflect the holiness of God one act at a time. One act at a time. And that act will be holy, just like God. You can be just like God. And when, you, when I say that, people think, well, I can't be just like God. Yes, you can. Not one act after the next after the next with perfect, a perfect record. You can't do that. But you could be just like God tonight. You could reflect the moral perfection of God in something you say on the patio on the way out. Something you say to your spouse on the way home in the car. Something you do with your children tomorrow afternoon. You can do it one act at a time. Now, between those acts of holiness, there may be problems. There will be problems. But according to passages like this, you can in actual time, you can, in a punctiliar sense, you can do things that reflect the perfection of God. Take a look at the text. Matthew chapter 5, drop all the way down to verse 43. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Classic example, you've heard it before, and it starts with, you've heard, (laughs) sorry. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. It's Matthew 5, 43. You've heard it said, love your enemy, love your neighbor. That's what you've heard. Hate your enemy. I read it right the first time. Shouldn't have tried it again. Verse 44. I'm giving you time to catch up. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your father in heaven. Works righteousness, works righteousness, works righteousness, works righteousness. It's not the point. The point is rebirth. John chapter 3. Here we're talking about Sanctification. You will reflect the godness of God, the holiness of God. You'll be a chip off the old block, right? You'll be sons of your father in heaven. When you do that thing that is godlike, when you pray for your enemy and, 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 and those that persecute you, because God, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Don't even tax collectors do that kind of thing. If you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't. Even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. What's the antecedent to that in the context of this, of this passage? I know some people turn this into a theological statement about, well, he's just telling us to be something we can't be. He just told us we can do it. When you pray for someone who persecutes you, the Bible says you're doing a perfect act, a holy act. Now, the word here is teleos, which means a just right act. It's just right. That's an act of holiness. If I said, hey, be perfect like God is perfect, you're kidding me. I can't do that. Yes, you can. You can't do it consistently perfect and faithfully for the rest of your life, but you could do it tonight. And do you see where bringing that into an attainable range starts to change my whole perspective on sanctification? I want to be sanctified one act at a time. Go for it. What can you do tonight before you go to bed that is a teleos 
hagios act, a perfect holy act. What, what could you do? You could do something that reflects the godness of God, the goodness of God, the holiness of God, and in so doing, you'd be holy. You'd be in a sanctified category, being a holy person. We're always thinking about records, and that's our pride. You know that, right? Why is it that we read a passage like this guy can't do that? Because we're trying to build up some kind of record. It's not about record keeping. It's about living in the moment and acting like God. How can you act like God in the moment of your life tomorrow? Do it. And in doing it, you're reflecting the goodness of God. Now, again, I said holiness is this overarching attribute. Because we'd have to ask, well, what would the acts be? Well, there are several. And one, for instance, what would the act be? You could do something that is just. Now we're getting to the specifics. God is unique and he's perfect. What kind of perfect things does he, does he do? Well, he does just things. He's for the right, just, equitable thing. So let's talk about his justice for a couple minutes. Let's turn to the Psalter, number nine. Psalm nine, the hymn book of the Hebrews. Key texts, Psalm 9.8 and Psalm 97. One is an action, a statement of the act of God, and one... In Psalm 97 is a, uh, is a poetic way of putting it that puts it in such an absolute category. We can't ignore it. It's such a great verse. In Psalm 9, verse 8, are you with me? He will judge the world, speaking of God now, in righteousness. That, by the way, is the attribute of justice. He will judge in righteousness. He will do the right kind of authoritative action. He will do the thing when he looks at evaluating and appraising And responding to a situation, he will respond in the righteous way. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will govern the people with justice. He'll do just the right thing in response to the situation, whether good or bad. Now, Psalm 97, just to show you how fundamental this is. If holiness is the foundational attribute of God, which I tried to state that it is, and hopefully logically we can see that it is, justice is depicted in Psalm 97 as much the same thing, a foundational attribute of God. I mean, from the foundation of his holiness. I mean, here springs two of the basic things that God would do then. These are still pretty broad attributes. Look at verse 2, Psalm 97, 2. Clouds and thick darkness surround him, surround God. Righteousness, now look at this poetic picture, and justice are the foundation of his throne. Those words went together in Psalm 9. He will respond rightly to everything. He will be equitable. He will be fair. He will do the thing that is right in response to the creatures that he's made. Righteousness and and justice, those go together. That's the foundation of his throne. All right, one more. Because I said I would always pair these with a messianic statement from the New Testament. Revelation chapter 19. Well, this is a great passage. Now, Revelation 19 is the return of Christ. A lot of talk about the return of Christ in the book of Revelation, but he doesn't come back until Revelation 19 and set his feet on the Mount of Olives, at least. And here it comes. Look at verse 11. I saw heaven open, standing open. And there before me, John says, was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. He judges and makes war. He's, I mean, this is the battle of Armageddon, right? This is a bad time. It's a, it's a violent time. But he comes with justice. And just war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. And a name, he's got a name written on him that no one knows but himself. More, more mystery in, in the Godhead here. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, right? That's Psalm 53, or Isaiah 53. 
and his name is the word of God. Right? John chapter 1. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, like a motocross leather, you know, Kawasaki rider, right? He's got a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, on his thigh. The picture of Christ's return is one in justice. And you remember all the passages, I'm sure, where justice has been granted from the Father to to the Son. And the Son now is depicted as one coming back to fix all the problems. Respond to every person. Respond to Babylon, the, the harlot, and all the things that are going on contextually in Revelation chapter 19. Okay, what are we trying to say? Definition. Trying to say God is perfectly equitable. Which, by the way, the expression of that will be through the Messiah. All judgment has been given to the Son. He will show the equity of God as he comes and judges with justice. Always correct in his compensation, and that's a good way to put it, because everything about justice in the context of God and his role as judge is payback, right? whether good or bad, in all things. And that's what I mean by that. In good or bad. He is perfectly equitable. No one's going to go, wow, that's not right. They're going to go, that is right. It's always correct. He always pays back in a measured, careful way. This is not a capricious, angry, responsive, knee-jerk God who gets angry and kicks the dog. That's not it. He's measured in his warfare. He is measured in his justice because it is always equitable. It is always faithful and is always true. Those are the titles given to the judge who comes and judges justly. Aspects of the attribute to ponder. We should ponder this. God's justice is satisfied on the cross. We talk about holiness when we present the gospel. We start with creator because that's, I mean, that's our relationship to him. We're his subjects. We're his creatures. He's the creator. Then we talk about his holiness. Why is there a cross to start with? Because he's holy and we're not, right? And then if we want to look at what's going on on the cross, we're dealing with God's justice, The reason I can't just be winked at and let in the back door of heaven is because God is holy. The reason there has to be a cross, and because it is a human sacrifice, the whole prompting of that, the the point of all that is to, to deal justly. For God to be the one who justly and equitably pays for sin. Because the question could be, hey, wait a minute, that guy's in heaven, he did wrong, he didn't pay for that. God's got to be able to show the, the bill and say, here, paid in full, which is what he said on the cross, right? To tell us die. I paid for that. Satisfied. The justice of God is satisfied. Romans chapter 3 would be a good place to go just to take a peek at this concept in the book of Romans. There is a word here used only twice in the New Testament. Translated in verse 25 as sacrifice of atonement. Translators always have a problem with this word. I guess the best word might be expiation, perhaps appeasement of justice. Let's see how it's set up. Verses 21 through 26. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known. There's the holiness. I try to keep the law. I can't do it perfectly. I'm not holy. Well, there is a righteousness, a holiness. That's what we meant by by holiness, a, a moral perfection. It comes from God, and it comes apart from me keeping the rules. And it has been made known. It's being revealed. 
to which, by the way, the law and the prophets testified. We saw it in Isaiah 53 briefly. This righteousness from God, it comes specifically to us through faith in Jesus Christ, to us, to all who believe. There's no distinction, and the distinction so far that we have in the middle of, verse, middle of chapter 1 through the end of chapter 3 was Jew and Gentile. It doesn't matter whether you're carrying around a, a Torah or not. Or you get the righteousness of God the same way. And are, verse 24, freely justified. Justified freely by his grace through the redemption. I got you back. You're no longer in the bad house anymore. That comes by Christ Jesus. Now, here's the, here's the judgment or the justice part. God presented him, Christ, as a, here it is, a sacrifice of atonement. That's one Greek word. A, uh, uh, an appeasement of justice. Okay? A uh, satisfactory payment. An expiation for sin, reparations for crimes. There's another good definition, right? Uh, what are the old translations? Uh, propitiation doesn't help. Might as well just be in Greek, right? Propitiation. What do we do? A, a expiation of a reparations for crimes. The justice of God is satisfied. That's what the word means here. Through faith in his blood, just like the hand in Leviticus chapter 1 verse 4 is on the animal, right? So it is that my spiritual hand, so to speak, is on the cross. And on my faith in his sacrifice, I get the expiation for sin. I get the appeasement of justice. I get the satisfactory payment. I get the propitiation. I get the reparation of crimes. He did this to demonstrate his, what's the word? Circle it. His justice. That's the reason for the cross. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he he was pretty tolerant in the past, he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. He wasn't ripping lightning bolts from heaven at everybody. Occasionally, right? Ananias and Sapphira and a few others. But bottom line is he was showing a lot of of forbearance. He left sins committed beforehand unpunished. Verse 26. He did it to demonstrate his justice, repeating himself now, the, the cross, at the present time. I know he overlooked things in the past. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I can't fix the problem. God's justice is dangling out here unsatisfied. I've got to have the justice of God satisfied. Again, that's why every world religion has a problem. Their God is not as holy as the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible demands his justice be satisfied. And most theologies in the world don't have that. We have something less than God. We have God, right, made in our image as opposed to us being made in God's image. We have a, uh, a, an idol that somehow can just overlook our sin. God is too just to overlook our sin. God is holy. He's morally perfect. In his moral perfection, there's a problem and a barrier. He's got to fix the problem. It's the cross. The cross is a demonstration of his justice. And I should say, just to be positive here for a moment, God's justice is not only toward evil, it's toward good. Because once we see in Scripture that I am now made right before God, back to Titus 3 in our minds, I am now to devote myself to doing good. And as I do good, the Bible says he will also demonstrate a facet of his justice in dealing with me on judgment day. Do you notice how Christians don't get out of judgment? What's that all about, right? I thought we get out of judgment. We get out of judgment that puts us in the lake of fire. But we stand before God at the Bema seat of Christ, the elevated platform of Christ, and we have to have our lives evaluated so that we can be responded to based on how we lived our lives. And we become now giving account of our stewardship before God, and we are judged. Same word, different concept. 
And the picture in the judgment of my life, the Bema Seat of Christ, is that his justice will now reward me. I am now a new person in Christ. Everything I do now that reflects the teleos or the hagios of God, right, the perfection or the holiness of God, he is now going to respond to positively. And if he didn't, he wouldn't be just. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. Look how this is set up. For Christians who are new in Christ, right? God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. And the point is, God's justice is so just that not only does he deal with the the evil side on the cross, but now he's watching the good side post-conversion and watching your life to reward you as a new creature in Christ. So if you stay here after we're done and help us put chairs back in place for Sunday service, let's just get that practical. And you blow 25 extra minutes where you could be sitting doing whatever you do, eating your Twinkie or whatever at 9 o'clock at night with your slippers on. And you say, I'm going to give that up to help the church get this place back together. Or you pull out a $100 bill and you say, you know what? I know these are hard times for the church. Here's a little plug for the offering. <laughs> and I know this costs a lot to feed us the old Kentucky grease meal. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put an extra 100 bucks in the box in the back. Every dollar, every hour, and maybe you're going to be on the phone helping encourage somebody through some point in their Christian life. Every ounce of effort, the Bible says he's going to reward it, every single one of them. If he didn't, it would be unjust. You're on the clock as a Christian, and you're working. And as you work, he will reward you. The equity and justice of God, there's nothing. You're going to, he's going to go, well, whatever, I didn't really pay attention to that. Unless it was a sinful act. God is not unjust. You need to see the rewards of God are based on his justice as well. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work or the love you have shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. All right, how do we imitate this? Well, it's a simple concept, profound concept, simple concept, but takes a lot of discernment to know exactly how to do what I'm about to say here, and that is to love justice and to hate injustice. You are teleos, you are holy, you are reflecting the the uniqueness of God. While the world goes its own way, when you love justice, equitable responses, proper responses, recompense, uh, compensation, and you hate injustice all over the scripture. A couple passages, how about I just read them to you, you can jot them down. Isaiah 61 verse 8. Isaiah 61 verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I love it. And I hate robbery, and I hate iniquity. In my faithfulness, I will reward people, those I've made this everlasting covenant with. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27. Here's the positive side. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it. Look at that. When it is in your power to act. Now, sometimes you say, well, I couldn't do anything about it. But the Bible says, I'm to hate, for instance, in Isaiah 61, verse 8, I'm to hate robbery because that's unjust. And I should love justice and hate that act. And then in Proverbs 3, when somebody does something good, I should not withhold good from them for doing good. If they deserved it and they did something good, I should do it. If I can, I may not be able to do it, but I should try. 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verses 4 through 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verses 4 through 7. This is a great text. Jehoshaphat's uh, putting uh, judges in place. 
great couple lines here. He appointed judges in the land, right? They were to adjudicate problems, each in the fortified cities of Judah. And he told them, this is a great line, listen carefully. He says, consider carefully what you do because you are not judging for man, but you are judging for Yahweh who is with you whenever you give a verdict. Now, let the fear of Yahweh be upon you. I guess so. Yeah, that was a pretty weighty thing to say. And judge carefully. For with Yahweh our God, there is no injustice and there's no impartiality and there's no bribery with him. So get out there and reflect this judgment. You know, you should feel that same pressure as a parent. You know that? You are, let me ask you, you are judging not for man, you're judging for God. And the Bible says with God, there is no injustice, there is no partiality, there is no bribery. So let the fear of the Lord be upon you and judge carefully. Let's go to Amos chapter 5 then. Amos chapter 5. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. There it is. Only two. Only two of the prophets out of the 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 prophets of the Old Testament went to the northern tribes of Israel. And this was one of them, Amos. For 10 points, who was the other one? Hosea, thank you. So good. You're on it. Where'd you learn that? Oh, me. Okay, thanks. <laughs> this is what Yahweh says to the house of Israel. Seek me and you'll live. Don't seek Bethel. Don't go to Gilgal. Don't go down to Be- Be- Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek Yahweh and live. Or you'll sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire and devour it in Bethel and you'll have no one to quench it. You who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness on the ground. He who made Pleiades and Orion, who turns blackness into dawn. Those are the constellations, right? And darkness uh, and darkens day into night. Uh, it says, who calls the waters of the sea and pours them over the face of the land. Yahweh is his name. And he flashes destruction on the stronghold and he brings the fortified cities to ruin. So don't trust in them. You ought to fear God and do what God wants. Okay? Verse 10. You hate the one who reproves in court, right? You're such a bleeding heart. You hate the guy who stands up and testifies against the criminal. And you despise him who tells the truth. You don't even like him. You trample on the poor and you force him to give you grain, the bully. You don't have any problem with that. Therefore, though you've built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you've planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous, you take bribes, you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent man keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then Yahweh, God Almighty, will be with you, just as you say he is. I know you say, you presume that he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts, Perhaps Yahweh, God Almighty, will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God of Israel says, the God Almighty says, rather, there will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There'll be wailing in the vineyards. I'll pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? It'll be darkness, not light. It'll be as though a man fled from a lion only to be met by a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall thinking he was safe and he gets bit by a snake. There are a lot of people that presume God because they have bleeding soft hearts. And I'm all into passion and and compassion and mercy. I understand that. But when you deprive justice because in the name of mercy, you no longer love what is right. See, the Bible says you think God's going to show up and give you a high five and it isn't going to be that way. The Bible says when God shows up, he won't be happy with you. 
The problem in Amos is Israel had lost their sense of justice. How many times does he say, uh, justice in the courts, right? We should, we, should, we should be all about that. I know in modern Christianity and liberation theology and a lot of other movements, there is this, this lack of understanding of justice. And justice has been turned on its head. But Amos is a great case study when it comes to that. Love justice and hate injustice. Secondly, never disdain God's justice. And it's all around us, by the way. God, right, the just God, he expresses his wrath every day. Death, think about it. We cry over the death of someone we know, but you know there are people that we don't know dying every single hour. You know that, right? The justice of God is everywhere. The Bible says the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, in that day you'll surely die. You'll return to dust. There'll be thorns in the ground. All of those things, I know we, we don't like them, and I'm all about that. But I don't want to shake my fist at God. There's a long way from mourning the, the sin in the world. It's a long way from that and saying, God, what's wrong with? Why, could, why do you have to do this to us? The justice of God. Some of you struggle with the doctrine of, of hell, right? That really bothers you, right? You need to go from my five-year-old daughter's understanding of math to you know, high school calculus. Because when you get into that, you start to understand, wait a minute, the lake of fire is the expression of God's justice and nobody in heaven's going, well, that's kind of a ripoff. Everybody in heaven. Let me give you an example. Revelation chapter 16. Everybody in heaven is going, this is the right thing. And you and I should never disdain the justice of God. I read an article about a guy who died, what, I don't know, he's 39 or something. And I thought, you know, we, we mourn that as a life cut short. I mean, I've done funerals for, for, for five-year-olds, right? I know the pain of seeing people have to bury their, their five-year-old child. I get it, man. It stinks. But you do understand from Methuselah's perspective, we're all dying as young lads. You know what I'm saying? Death stinks no matter what age. Right? I don't know what you mean when you say, well, she had a good life. What, we don't love the 96-year-old woman in the nursing home? She doesn't matter anymore? Do you understand what I'm saying? Death is terrible. It is the terrible response of a just God to sin. And you and I need to not disdain it. We should hate it, right? It is the enemy of God, but we should recognize God is being just. God is a just God. Revelation chapter 16, the ultimate the ultimate expression of God's justice, his wrath in the book of Revelation. Start in verse 1. Revelation chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. First angel went out and poured out his bowl on the land. Ugly, painful sores broke out on all the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned to blood like that of a dead man and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers, the springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the water saying, you are just in these judgments. Hmm. That's a better perspective than ours. You who are and who were the holy one because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets. They have, you have given them blood to drink as they deserved. And then I heard the altar respond and everybody up there going, no, I don't think it's so just. No, they say, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And I'm saying I'm going to defer to heaven's perspective even when it comes to considering the doctrine of hell. Think of how unpopular that is today. It is an expression, a necessary expression of the justice of God. How about this? You can't worship without, without it. Just jot it down. Psalm 101, verse 1. Psalm 101, verse 1. I will sing of your love and of your justice. I will sing to you, O Lord. I will sing your praise. 
That's not what we're writing modern Christian songs about anymore. Have you noticed that? The justice of God. Well, that's why I don't like Compass Bible Church. Those hard, no, I don't know the justice of God. One more. God is also loving. God is loving. Now, this sounds like our gospel presentation, right? This is not intentional. These are how, in just a logical progression of God's attributes, they come. They come out. They come to the justice of God, or the holiness of God. He's perfect. In his perfection, he responds rightly to sinners and justice. But he's loving. And his response to equitable, just recompense to people that deserve it, there's something else that happens in the universe that responds uh, resonates rather with our hearts because we're the sinners at whom his uh, wrath is aimed. Key text. You don't need to turn there. You know this one. John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Whoever does not love, verse 8 says, does not know God because God is love. Now remember, they're not flying around in heaven saying, love, love, love is the Lord God Almighty. What they are saying is he is the embodiment of something that is so dramatic in his redemptive work that he, that's love. And, and you could also say the same thing about his justice. Say the same thing about his mercy. Say the same thing about his omnipresence if you wanted to. He is the embodiment, he, uh, the, perfect, the perfect expression of, the, of that virtue. How about John chapter 13, verse 34? You don't need to turn to that one either. As long as we're rounding out the view of, of God, I'm supposed to love like God. Okay? Jesus comes on the scene in verse 34. It says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, Christ puts himself up as the standard. Even that is an act of divinity, right? Love like me. That would be amazing to, to hear coming from the mouth of anybody else. Definition, real quick, because we're running out of time. God freely and perfectly acts. You can see the connection, the more you study the love of God, to his justice and... To his holiness. He freely and perfectly acts for the good and the well-being of others. He freely and perfectly acts for the good and the well-being of others. As we'll see, not equally, but in his expression of love, his specific love, the love that he places on his people, he demonstrates it in a perfect way. He showed them as John said in John 13, he showed them the full extent of his love. We'll get into that right now. Aspects of this attribute to ponder. Number one, God's love is the volition of the cross. If you can process that bizarre sense. God's love is the volition of the cross. It is the thing that makes him decide to do it. We talk about the love of God. You know, we can say the love of God is the reason for the cross. Well, the reason for the cross is his holiness. The point of the cross is his justice. The decision of the cross is his love. Do you see that? I mean, the reason for the cross is he's holy. There's got to be a payment. The point of the cross is the satisfaction or the propitiation of his his justice. But the the prompting, the motive, the, the decision, the volition of the cross is his love. And even because we're talking about a cross, I hope you understand it's not sentimentalism. It's not emotionalism. It's not, man, I'm attracted to those people. I just want to go kiss them, right? I mean, that's how we love, right? I want to be near them, whether it's a baby or, or a girl, right? You say, oh, get near, oh, just love them. 
It's all about drawing the, the beauty or the good or the cuteness or the, we're experiencing that. It's all, oh, I just want to be near that. I love you. That's not God's love. God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Quoting now Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's a great text. If you want to jot that down, you should jot down verses 6 through 11 and read the whole thing when you get home. We are powerless, he says. There's nothing attractive. It's not, and again, you could look at Ezekiel. What a horrible picture of seeing this baby wallowing in its blood as Yahweh walks by and sets his love on, on the baby and, and washes the baby and takes the baby, loves the baby. Remember the picture of that? Grows the baby up. I mean, it's a graphic picture. When your breasts were formed and you were old enough for love, I loved you. But the point is you were, you were, you were a, a fetus in a dirt pile I didn't love you as, as, as he said in the Pentateuch because you were greater than all the other nations. I set my love on you because I promised to do it. I just did it. He sets his love on people, not because he's attracted to them because they're so wonderful. And that, by the way, is a lot of what you read about in the shack, right? And other books like that, that reduces God to a relationship where he's just so in love with you, Right? If you, if you picture this as some kind of 16-year-old romance, you don't understand the God of the Bible. He looks at us in disgust, you realize that, and chooses, because of his redemptive work through Christ, to make us holy because of his love. And then it isn't just so that, that he can enjoy us. Here's the real love of God, so that we can enjoy him. It's a whole different kind of thing than this whole kind of man-centered, anthropomorphic, relational God who's in love with us and has our picture on his refrigerator. I understand the, the aspect of that that we resonate with. God loves us. But I hope you understand it's not because we're lovable, right? He loves us because he's demonstrating his perfection. And I got to deal with this with no time left. He doesn't love everybody the same. You do understand that in the scripture, right? If he loves everybody the same, then his love is powerless with most of the world. And he, he's reduced to some kind of pathetic, uh, you know, uh, gap in the tooth, four eyes girl, junior higher, trying to get a dance at a date, right? And, and, and we just can't get most of the world over to dance with him. That is not the picture of God in the Bible. God's effectual love is specific. He places his love on people. Remember, by the way, if you want to know that God doesn't love everybody the same, you do understand that when we talk about wrath, we talked about it on, on Sunday, Saturday night and Sunday. You know, orge, the word orge, wrath. What does wrath mean? What is wrath? Anger, right? Hatred, anger. That's what it is. When we talk about the wrath of God and we can't avoid it, it's all over the scripture. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up for yourself wrath for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. <laughs> that doesn't sound very loving, right? But God loves everybody, right? He loves everybody, but not in the same way. You understand that, right? In the scripture, his love is demonstrated. We already read it in, in, in Matthew chapter 5 in that he sends his reign on the evil and the good. And this is our study on, on the weekend, right? When is that? Day after tomorrow and Sunday? His kindness leads us to repentance. 
his forbearance and his patience. He is, and it's a play on words, he is rich in all of those things. And he's trying to lead us to repentance. And then the very next verse says, but because of your stubbornness, you're going to get a lot of his anger instead. You don't get his anger. He loves you differently than he loves your pagan next door neighbor. Right? Does he love them? He sends rain on the evil and the good. He's good to those that hate him, but not forever. Right? The lake of fire is not some act of love. You understand that. That's an act of anger. It's not capricious. It's not knee jerk. It's not flying off the hook. It's measured recompense because he's a just God. But God doesn't love everybody the same. I'm sure I'll get emails on that. How to initiate this? But it's true, right? He doesn't love everybody the same. How do we, how do we imitate this? Well, don't you love everybody the same? <laughs> you shouldn't love everybody the same. Some examples. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those of the family of faith, especially those who are of the, of the brotherhood of believers, especially those in, in, the, in the church. If you have an opportunity to do good to two people and one is a child of God and one is not, the Bible says you choose to do good to this one. You give preference, especially to the, to the family of faith. Oh, and then, by the way, how about this one? Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 33. Husbands, you are to love your wives to the fullest human extent that you possibly can. And don't love everybody else that way. Amen. Think about it. You want to love that person differently than you love the person in the church, differently than you love the person that hates God. As a matter of fact, in the women's retreat, I hope clarified this for the gals that went, Psalm 15 says what? In whose heart, this is a righteous person who has fellowship with God, a vile man is despised. Now, I'm to do good to him, and that's an act of love. Love is a decision to do good for the well-being of others. And if an enemy is starving to death, I pass them a meal. That's an act of love. But I am not happy about their life, and there is in the Scripture this word despise. I don't love them the way I'm called to love my spouse or the way I'm called to love my church. God's love is distinctive and discriminating. That might be a better way to put it. And ours ought to be too. Now, we don't have the right to cast people in the lake of fire. We don't have the right to take our own vengeance. We don't have the right to push people off a cliff. We don't have the right to do all that. God has the right to do that. He says, vengeance is mine. I'll repay. We don't repay. But in terms of a hierarchy of love, I trust you love your wife a whole lot more than some guy on on death row. You should. And if the guy on death row becomes a Christian, you ought to love him better than somebody who, who tramples underfoot the blood of Christ. You understand that, right? It's not about past or resumes. It's about trust in Christ. Secondly, with no time left, you should choose to love sacrificially. There's nothing wrong with emotion and sentimentality. There's a place for it, and it's cool. Go for it, right? But that's not agape love, and that's not New Testament love. And the love that we should reflect, if we're looking to reflect the attributes of God, is to choose, that's volition, That's covenant kind of love. Even the word, by the way, in Hebrew, hesed. Hesed, the Hebrew word for love, is a a covenant word. It's a love that says, I'm committed to you. Right? You choose to love sacrificially. In other words, here's a passage. Let's let's turn to this one since it's the last, 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Christ's love was a template. If we're supposed to love like he loved, it's a template of choosing to commit myself to the well-being of someone else, even at great personal cost. There's a definition for you. He chooses to love 
He chooses, volitionally chooses to love someone, not because they're lovable or attractive. He chooses to love them in a covenant sense. He promises to do so and he carries it out, right? At great personal cost. Verse 16, 1 John three sixteen. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That wasn't a feel-good kind of thing. That was death on a cross. That was painful. It was sacrifice. And we ought to lay down our lives, and even this is a a hierarchy of of love, right? For our brothers, die for them. If you have to, verse 17. If anyone, now he gets down to, you know, a lot of people say, I'll die for my brothers in Christ, but, you know, I'm not giving up my cell phone. I mean, verse 17 gets down to the nitty-gritty. If anyone has material possessions and he sees his brother in need and has no compassion on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue. That's easy to talk about it, but with actions and in truth. Right? You want to be teleos tonight, do a holy thing and reflect the perfection and holiness of God. Right? Love justice and hate injustice. And then choose to meet a need. Choose in your commitment to do something for the well-being and good of someone else at great personal cost, even if it's slight personal cost. When you are put out for doing good for someone else's advancement, that is the love of God. Start with your family, extend it to the body of Christ, and even as Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 says, do good to all people. Just keep your priorities straight as you do. All right, we're out of time. Let's pray. God, I know this is so fast, and it's really just hardly does justice to what we're dealing with here. But God, we want, to, uh, we want to think about your holiness, we want to think about your justice, and we want to think about your love, and we'd like to put those things into practice in our lives. To be unique, to be willing to not be like the rest of the world. We're going to be set apart, trying to live a morally distinctive and holy life. We want to love justice. We don't want to fall to some kind of uh, artificial view of God's love that sacrifices a love of, of what is right, hating what is wrong. And then, God, we want to give ourselves to others for their well-being, for their good. And a lot of times, as the death of Christ proved, it, it didn't even feel good. It felt bad. So, God, help us in that regard. And I pray that maybe this would be the launching pad for study for people here. Like those four books I put on the back of the worksheet, maybe they would take the time to order that or, or buy them in our bookstore or order them online and spend some time studying one of these three uh, attributes in, in more depth this week. So thanks for getting us together and I pray that we would grow as Paul prayed for the Colossian church in our knowledge of God so that we can take off the blinders and be able to live in this world intelligently and stop stumbling and bumbling through life as Packer said. We want to know who you are so we can understand how to live, how to respond rightly, how to reflect your communicable attributes in a world that needs salt and light reflections of God, sons and daughters of God in this world. In Jesus' name.